welcome to season two of our Brave New You Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, co-founder with Meredith Hepner Chapman of Brave New You Apparel. I interview real-life brave new girls and guys who have chosen a road less traveled, risen to the challenges, and found the courage to keep going when the going gets tough. They share the lessons they've learned, their wins, and their vision for the future. Brave, bold, and sometimes bloody-minded, they bring you their stories from the edge. This week's guest is Rita Gadkari, a property developer and philanthropist who has supported literacy and numeracy in India and the resurgence of Indian classical music. In recent years, she has created the Owl and the Pussycat Hotel on a coastal corner of Sri Lanka, bringing art, poetry, music and architecture under one roof. Welcome, Rita, to Brave New You Tribe. Hi, Rita. How are you? Hi, Lou. Great to see you. So you've been in Sri Lanka where you have a hotel during the last three months. So it's been more than lockdown for you there. Can you can you paint a picture of what it's been like, how Sri Lanka have dealt with it? Well, it was more than a lockdown. We went straight into a curfew on the 16th of March. And it was lifted briefly once or twice for a few hours, which wasn't very good you know, the infection rates were going up. So we went back into curfew and it was only just lifted in early June, I think. Yeah. But it was very strict and nobody was allowed to step out of their compound. And how do you cope with being in one place without any freedom? In fact, it was easier than I thought. You know, you learn to, there was no stuff coming in or out, all the groceries and produce were brought to the building via private trucks. We had quite good produce coming to us from the countryside. There were vegetables and fruits and fish and meats, which we were able to buy almost every day. Breads came from hotels. And uh, so a little bit of socializing happened near the truck. And otherwise, we came home with the produce, you know, cooked a few things, worked from home walked around inside the compound in Sri Lanka. It's possible to swim during this period. So it wasn't too bad, actually. Watched a lot of movies, Zoom calls with friends. So it was fine. And your children, did you keep in touch via Zoom or were they with you? They were not with me. Our daughter and son-in-law live in New York. And our son and daughter-in-law with our grandson live in England. So we would do a lot of FaceTime and Zoom chats, sometimes group chats on a Sunday with all of us together. So we tried to stay positive and support each other. You know, we have the technology now to do it. So it was great. So I'd like to have a bit of background to how you got to where you are now. Were you an adventurous young woman? You know, I started off life, you know, as a young mom you know, newly married, trying to be a writer. It wasn't easy. I mean, this I'm talking 40 years ago. We didn't have career counseling. I didn't know what direction I wanted. I I was a good writer and I got a few writing awards in my my 20s. But I didn't have any mentoring or any counseling to know how to get published, what has to be done. So it was not a, a very promising option Though I feel now that with the right connections, perhaps I could have published and become an established writer. 
so I fell into this uh, construction business as one of the many things I do. Only by accident, I was uh, we had invested in a property in Manhattan, which uh, needed some work, but we had put all our money into the purchase of this apartment and then into the renovation of the apartment. And then, of course, we were cheated by the contractor, which happens when you're a novice buyer. And I had to wait two years in essentially what was a construction site. And following that, I decided one day that, you know, enough is enough. I really need to do something. So I was able to get hold of a retired carpenter. And I didn't have money for a second person to help. So I I decided to be his assistant and he was going to teach me everything. And then we built a, just the most fabulous apartment. I learned to mitre the wood and sand the floors and hang doors on hinges and put in the door locks and knobs. And it was an extremely interesting time. I was being mentored and, and trained by somebody who knew what he was doing. And I think many times young people don't have the opportunity to learn from somebody who knows what they're doing. And looking back now, it was possibly the most important thing because now I couldn't even get cheated. I knew how much things had to cost, what had to be done, how much time it was going to take. And that's where I got started, project by project. I mean, there's something really empowering about apprenticeships, isn't there, where you learn at the, at the hand of somebody who is a master at what they do. Absolutely. And so you were learning how to actually make and build um, and presumably you were learning the efficiencies and the the pitfalls of construction and project management what was your vision did you want to just keep building bigger and bigger things you have an amazing eye for interiors oh thank you well one of the things that happened after we uh, finished that apartment that I was working on that uh, in quick succession I had two kids And the apartment was then not big enough for us. So we moved out to Westchester, which is a suburb north of Manhattan. And with the knowledge that I already had, I started to fix up. So I bought sort of not a dilapidated place, but a place that needed work to smarten it up. And I realized, my goodness, there's nothing to it. I knew about costing. I was able to budget carefully. And yes, it was a small project, but I gave it a facelift. And a year later, we were being reposted to London because of uh, Vilas's work. And uh, I suddenly realized that I was able to rent out this house at quite a good price because of the work I had done. But I had no formal instruction in budgets and how to do it. So I was still learning and growing. But when we came to London, I decided to try another little project And I guess I was good at it. And I applied all the knowledge which I had gained from the other previous projects. And and slowly, slowly, project by project, it grew into a bigger business. And all this was happening while I had two small kids, but it gave me flexibility to work. And actually, I'm surprised that more women are not in this field in a more professional way, because it is a field that women could be good at. It gives them flexibility. And they apply a lot of common sense to construction, which comes in handy. You then built some, was it apartments in Mumbai? 
Yes, once, uh, so we lived in London for 25 years. So I did a few projects in London. And then once the kids were out of the house and we were moving on with their lives, we had for a long time considered perhaps spending six, eight months of the year every year in Asia. And I did a few projects in India, which were not easy because it's a male dominated world, the construction world. And men don't take you seriously. Artistic vision is scoffed at. Um, it was quite difficult convincing bankers and investors that I would be good at this. Let me try this in Mumbai. And it, and it was quite difficult. Bureaucracy is tough. But after a few, three years of doing a few projects, I did quite a few projects actually, I decided then to just look around in Asia to see what my other options were. And I fell in love with Sri Lanka. It's a beautiful island. The bureaucracy is less. There are more opportunities. It was easier to get started. And so now I'm doing a few projects in Sri Lanka, which should be quite good fun. Um, you talked about artistic vision and, you know, property development could be seen as a sort of fairly dry money-making type path but actually you know you've always been involved in the arts and you've always supported artists and that seems to be very much part and parcel of certainly the look of of the places that you you build and create so can you talk about that side a bit more so you know many times artistic vision one assumes always costs money but it shouldn't. And I think careful research and good planning, a good look around at the availability of materials and how to use the materials, how to be creative, doesn't have to cost money. And I've always believed that a smaller budget should not create a dry product. You know, it doesn't matter what your budget is, beauty and art can still be interwoven into a project, no matter how small or how big. And it, it, like every space, even if it is 500 square feet of living space, still can be beautiful and charming and exciting for a young couple to be in. And I was driven by that, that it must, that every place that you live in, where you eat in, where you cook, it must be beautiful. It doesn't matter how small or big or how big or small your budget. And so the hotel that you've created in Sri Lanka was inspired by... The poem, The Owl and the Pussycat. So actually, I wasn't inspired by the poem, but the, the project led me to this uh, poem. And um, I'm not really a cat person. I, I always had dogs. But during this period, our daughter and son-in-law had a beautiful black cat with yellow eyes. And I used to hear stories. I mean, they had just got the cat at that point in New York. And also during the construction, a little kitten got separated from its mother and was moving around. And it just, I used to love this poem as a child. And it came to me. And when I looked over the poem more carefully, I realized, you know, this really suits what I'm doing in Sri Lanka. You know, it's a mixed race uh, couple, the owl and the pussycat. There's no indication who is male and who's female. They could be even the same sex. And you know what? It was edgy and cool and romantic. They were clearly interested in food, the sense of adventure. And it just sort of clicked with me. And despite all the fancy names that were being offered as a possible name for the hotel, I decided to call it Owl and the Pussycat. 
I've not been, but um, I've read on the website that you've filled it with artworks by artists from around the world. Um, You've created bespoke furniture. Every sort of nook and cranny is there's something beautiful to look at. And you've sort of tried to bring poetry and architecture together under under one roof. For those of us who are still kind of in lockdown and can't fly anywhere, can you paint a picture for us of what it feels like to be in that space? Well, one concept that really excites me is that when I, whenever I'm doing a project or whenever someone is doing a project, it's nice if you can work with people who lend their uh, talent in a way that boosts them as well in some, some ways. So I worked with local artisans. So I would have somebody, like I had a young chap with me called Anton from Germany. He was 20 years old who was into carpentry and art. And he came and worked alongside these workers and showed them how to uh, make picture frames and how to paint the doors and things like that. I had a a young artist friend from Italy, Chiski Gabriele, who came and sat for three months in Sri Lanka, doing a lot of the work, using old photographs and old artworks, you know, sort of artworks that were falling apart. But he enhanced and embellished and created something new out of something old and dusty and horrible lying at the back of an antique shop. So I worked with this concept where different people came and there were photographers and uh, metal workers, wood carvers, wood specialists in woodcrafting, people who perhaps were used to doing the same thing all the time. But I would say that, look, work with Anton, work with Chiski, do something different, create something new. And I would give them quite a long leeway. I would say I don't like reds and yellows, but work with pastel colors. And they would take instruction. I would follow them very, very closely, uh, reject what I didn't like. You know, one has to be honest about these things. And eventually we found so many quirky types of art that have filled our spaces. I had a very, very shoestring budget to work with. But it was really interesting. I worked with fabric makers, you know, the sheets. Uh, you, you can't get a lot of uh, things made from cotton in Sri Lanka. So he bought the cotton in China and got the eyelet work done in India and had it brought and then got them down to Sri Lanka. Dressing gowns, we went through computer graphics, designed owls and pussycats on the men's dressing gowns, printed them onto a fabric that I bought in Pakistan and then worked with, you know, a tailor to sort of sew up an old uh, kimono style dressing gown, which everybody seems to love right now. But it has been so much fun because we worked with more than 20 different people doing different things. There were people, we got baskets made. There were, so if we had dining tables for the terrace, the table tops were being made by one person. The iron bottom was being made by somebody else. And we, it was like a, I was sort of uh, like a conductor putting the whole thing together. And it's been quite an amazing when we, and I'm a, a big fan of no wastage. So I would get an artistic tiler and tell him that, look, I've got all these pieces of tile, which are going to get thrown away. They're extra. What can you do? And many times you listen to them and he put it together. He, he put a jumble of different patterns of tiles on the floor and created a beautiful pattern which I have now used on my yoga platform. I use them also in our um, 
little spa, seaside spa. And so the hotel is quirky. Nothing matches with anything else. But there was one carpenter. So he used all the scrap wood and made little picture frames with scrap wood. And that's on the walls hanging on the hallways. And it was just great fun. From supporting artisans and artists, going back, you've always had an interest in supporting and championing people and the arts that might be struggling, helping them to sort of find their their feet or their voice again. Um, one of the projects that you helped with right from the outset was was Pratham, the charity to help children in India learn to read and write. Can you talk a bit about that and how that's progressed? So that has been an amazing NGO that we got involved with in the early days. And the idea that a child can go from being totally unable to read to suddenly being able to, in four to six months, being able to read a paragraph, there's something really, really uplifting and wonderful about that. And uh, initially, when the charity was started by UNICEF in, you know, sort of 15, 20 years ago, there were 200 million children in India who could not read or write. And now there are only about 25 million that are unable to read or write. If you go into a little village, there are hardly any kids left because they're not hanging around anymore on the streets and playing uh, cricket. They are in some kind of a school format, an informal school format, which Pratham has created for all the kids of different ages who can come together. And they have a unique uh, educational system by which a child within four to 16 weeks is able to read or write. And then they can go to school. Then they can enter a formal institution and become part of a school system. So that has been quite incredible, not only for the kids, but also for young volunteers who've come forward for a small stipend to get involved. I've been in villages where a young mother who's, let's say, 19 years old with two small kids is having a class with 10 kids within her bedroom. And those kids are singing and and doing poetry, and they can read the alphabet, they can say the numbers, and they are called balwadi. It literally means a little home for children. And they have moved from there on to schools and now have become volunteers themselves. 15, 20 years later, they are in their young, early 20s and have come back into the system to become volunteers, to carry on the process of uh, teaching and bringing literacy to these uh, small kids. I remember when you first told us about that, you wanted us to go and uh, film what they were doing, the work that they were doing. And you told us about these young women that were going and sitting on street corners and teaching the kids. And we we didn't couldn't believe it until we saw it for our own eyes. Well, that was in the early days when literally somebody would open an umbrella and sit on a stool, let's say on the side of a gas station. And then the kids would just come by out of curiosity to see what she was doing. And she would show them a book. She would show them a picture, say this is an apple and that's a dog and and get the kids, and the kids are like sponges. They would come there, and the mother would also show up, and they would all find out that something exciting is going on. And the volunteer would say, well, I'll be back here tomorrow. If you like books, I'll bring more books tomorrow. And it's been quite an unbelievable journey for Pratham to bring a lot of, when you hear now these kids who started off on the side of the street, 
who now become volunteers, they become educated workers who are giving back to the same system. Because Pratham didn't have money to pay salaries and build schools. So it was always a sort of a nomadic uh, thing that the early volunteers would just move wherever they could find a little shady spot and 10 kids would gather. Moving to Sri Lanka, they'd come out of civil war. They were beginning to find their feet and and you were going to be building a, a hotel there. So there was a lot of hope, wasn't there, when you first arrived? Yes. Uh, well, the mood was generally quite upbeat when I got there about five, six years ago. And But what I found is that there were still kids, they were all literate compared to India. The literacy is much higher. The kids were literate, but they were not trained. And it was a wonderful challenge to hire kids who were perhaps didn't speak English, who had no foreign experience, who were timid and afraid of foreigners, who were demanding, you know, coffee and cappuccino and macchiato names that they couldn't even pronounce. But they were eager to learn. They were happy that somebody was interested in their lives. And slowly the hotel has now been open four years. And the boys are, it's interesting to see they're confident and smiling. They're able to communicate with the guests. And it doesn't matter if the language is perfect or not. They're able to communicate and not be timid, make the guest comfortable and feel, make him feel welcome. You know, I, I think ultimately learning from a mentor is something really special. Somebody who's interested not just in training for the monetary value alone, but for training because it, enhance, it enhances their lives. It makes them, a lot of the boys who got trained did move on. But I don't mind that. They move on to a better pay, a bigger hotel, maybe gaining more experience. And as they move along, I like to take the boys. It's easier to get the boys who are quite young, who start off when they are 22, 23, trainable. And many times they go off to the Middle East or whatever. It doesn't matter, but they're moving on to, they're moving upwards up the ladder. Obviously, you're reliant with the hotel on the tourist industry prior to the pandemic. A year prior, there had been the the terrorist bombing in the capital. What's the feeling? Well, people were so frightened. It came out of left field. It was Easter Sunday. People were in shock. And for three, four months, people didn't just, just didn't know what to do. There was no all the tourists had cancelled their trips. Insurance wasn't paying them for trips under these conditions. It was really tough. I think for five, six months, we struggled on. And uh, finally, the tourists did come back. And it was a happy time, you know, December, January, February, March. It was, you know, in the industry was buoyant. Guests were back. And, and then we had the COVID with another big, uh, you know, attack really on the economy. But I believe that we will recover from it. Domestic travel has started. And as soon as the quarantine is lifted, I'm sure guests will come back. It's a beautiful country. It's a beautiful experience to be there. And um, we are actually, because of the poetic name of our hotel, I'm actually hoping to attract some writers and artists who would like to come and stay there during this difficult time. You know, they can come and stay for a month or six weeks and work there and uh, you know the workers are happy to have people in the hotel and we were happy to welcome them without any charge so they can come and be with us sort of a little mini residency 
are there lots of artists and musicians and theatre um, in Sri Lanka that that you are involved with? I'm still finding my feet. I've only and I've been busy with you know other construction projects, but I'm looking to see how I can encourage uh, jazz musicians to play at the hotel on weekends and to pay them something so they have they can make a little bit of a livelihood. Perhaps poets who can come and read. Uh, from their works, writers can come and re- read as well. Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, people have more time. They're interested. It's exciting for all of us. And um, if I can help in any way promote the arts, theater is a little difficult for me because we are right on sea edge. And the sea is a really loud, boisterous Indian Ocean. You can hardly hear anything. But uh, for music and uh, poetry reading, book reading. I think it's a wonderful place for us to do it. And if we can help young students, young writers, poets to come there, I think it's just a great thing that we would enjoy doing together. And you have always done that from from quite a young age. You got involved with um, Spick McKay, which was the charity started by a friend of yours to support Indian classical musicians at a time when, with an oral tradition, it was sort of starting to die out. Can you explain about what that was and how you came to be involved? Well, you know, Dr. Kiran Sait, who's a very dear friend of ours, when he returned in, I believe it was 1976 from America, he was quite astounded that people know about rock and roll and Western music, but had no idea about their own classical heritage, which is, which is a very rich music tradition going back many centuries. And so he started off um, inviting musicians to come and perform. And many times the musicians had not performed professionally for months or perhaps a year or two because there was no money. People were not paying for tickets to come and attend these uh, concerts. So essentially he got the idea that if the concerts were available without any cost, so people could just come and enjoy, that that would be a wonderful thing for both sides. So the artists would be invited to a university or a school, and then the students would be invited. And it was quite a wow experience for everyone. The musicians were happy to perform, the kids were enjoying it, and now it is in hundreds of cities, not only around India, but also in UK and the US. It has grown into a music movement, I would say. And anytime there's a movement, you know, it's a partnership from both sides. The performers come and they're excited to give us their gift to us. And we, the recipients, are delighted to have it. So it's been, it's been really a wonderful experience. We talked earlier about your your experience as an apprentice in uh, construction. And so the the tradition of the Indian classical music is very much based on apprenticeship, on the, the teacher-student relationship. But it involves many, many years. And how keen are young people to be involved in that process that takes such a long time? Well, you know, it's evolving perhaps into a newer music form. People have to go to school now by law. They have to study the traditional, you know, maths and language and science or whatever. 
But music, uh, I mean, there are still a lot of young people perhaps that don't dedicate their entire life. Uh, people like uh, Ustad Asad Ali Khan, who I think perhaps you met, he, from the age of two, basically played on his instrument for seven, eight hours a day. It's not possible in the world we live in today. People have to go to school and, and do other formal forms of education. But still, there are a lot of talented people. There's a lot of new, 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 the birth of, there's a new generation of young musicians. And I do believe that Spick McKay was instrumental in allowing, I mean, it's over 40 years that this movement has been going on. And it's been extremely supportive and encouraging and motivational for young students to give their best to the form of music that they have been learning or practicing. And you, you spoke when we talked before about in Sri Lanka that there was, is it a dance form that, that, you, that you want to sort of support and help get out there? Well, there are these uh, traditional dancers, you know, who are drummers and dancers and they tell a story through their dance. It's a really vibrant and exciting dance form. The, the music has probably been around for many centuries, also the drumming. And, they, they, and there is a singer and he, there are three or four musicians who sing and tell the tale. And then there are performers who enact those scenes. And many times there are domestic scenes of a mother and a child or the old lady and her son or a young couple. They tell little stories. And it's probably like a moving troupe that goes from village to village. They usually perform at weddings. But, you know, I feel that sometimes we don't give it the status of a performance and they are they become background entertainment. I would like to see that change into a much more, uh, perhaps not formal in an auditorium, but to train the audience as well. That these are respected artists. They're performing something special for you. Please don't talk and drink and eat during this. Enjoy it for an hour, 45 minutes. And give them the due respect that you would give somebody inside a hall. This is an oral tradition. But a lot of these musicians, they must be introduced. Many times I find that they just come drumming along and nobody introduces. The artists are not mentioned. And I think I would like to give them a little bit more of a cultural status, which they deserve. They're extremely talented and it's wonderful to, to watch them. You've been extremely supportive of, of the arts over the years and you've been very successful in your own right. It's very easy from the, the outside to, to look at the life that you've created and to think, oh, well, you know, she's successful and courageous and, and she's sort of made things happen. You know, what have been the challenges for you that you've really had to sort of lock heads with? See, many times, if it is not a strictly monetary interest, many people are just not interested in supporting, like there's no direct monetary gain. And that is a big challenge, like, you know, raising money for Spick McKay or raising money for a theater program, music, dance, even our, even our hotel where we, we do things in a way where we support the arts and the culture as part of who we are. And it has, I mean, if a, if dancers come to us, we still have to pay them. But, I mean, that is a big challenge, you know, how to raise the funds, because I can't raise the funds for everything, to convince people that this is a worthwhile activity, that this will 
the, what you will gain is more than just a monetary gain. You gain something special, more, you know, more than you can imagine, especially for children when they see a performance or listen to, uh, we had, you, you know, we are part of the Gaul Literary Festival and we had the opportunity to host one of England's amazing poets called Kate Tempest. And when she came and stayed with us, we are also part of a Edward Lear Prize for Poetry, where young students between the 18, ages of 18 and 30 can compete for this prize. And they realized suddenly, well, Kate was very kind and decided to recite a poem in front of these young students. But when she came on the stage, she burst onto the stage with so much energy and vibrancy that the kids were absolutely in awe. And I could see that they had not realized that poetry is not about writing lines on a page, but it was about being able to recite and communicate and discharge energy and passion to the listener. And the kids were mesmerized. And for me, that is something really, really special that, you know, it's a win-win for all of us. We all had a wonderful time. There were students who went away with prizes. Kate herself was thrilled to be there. So, you know, these are special experiences and I want to carry on promoting them and supporting them in whatever way I can. It's not always, but it is a challenge to, to get the financing. In our case, we finance the Edward Lear Prize from our own uh, earnings from the hotel. And last year, we, this, earlier this year, we couldn't do it because of the terrorist attack. But we're hoping again to be back in business for January 2021. With the global pandemic kind of rocking everything to, to its core, how do you start again from where you're at now? Well, I'm always an optimist. I do believe this will pass. Perhaps we will be living in a changed world and we have to be more careful and more respectful of others by not spreading our germs onto them. But I think that performances and all kinds of things can be done in an, in an intelligent way where we can preserve the distance that we should have between each other and still have a good time. So even when we are serving food at the restaurant, the waiter wears a mask and uh, the diners don't, but we keep the tables far apart. And we do it in a, in a non-stressful way. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be stressful. It's just uh, another way. And I grew up in a culture where women covered their heads, some women covered their faces. It's not a big deal. You know, we just have to accept it and do what has to be done. It doesn't make the enjoyment of life any less. So are you building more projects? What, what for the future? Well, I'm building two further projects. Both one is right next to my hotel. And I'm building a residential project where people can buy the apartments and use the services of the hotel. And further down the coast, I'm building a larger project um, on a beautiful piece of land. But the same philosophy applies to all my projects, that it should be a place to come and rest and relax and enjoy the beauty of Sri Lanka, you know, be near the sea, and keeping everything simple. The simpler it is, the easier it is for all parties. It's easier on the cleaning, it's easier for guests to come and relax, to find their own space, a place where they can also stay longer, to read and... Uh, uh, I'm a big fan of creating spaces where people can socialize. You know, traveling is often a lonely experience. You just meet waiters and shopkeepers. 
So I love in all my projects to have a space where people can, when they're having a drink, come and share a little antipasti. You know, we do that in Italy all the time. Where And they don't have to pay for it. You know, there's enough food left in the kitchen from breakfast and lunch that can be now put together in a different way. There are breads with tomatoes, with garlic. I mean, they don't cost a lot of money, but it's, it's the spirit of generosity and hospitality. And we have noticed in the last four years that many times when people come and meet in a foodie environment, they end up chatting, where are you from? Where are you going? What have you seen? And three days later, I see them eating together, having dinner together. And that to me is really what hospitality should be all about. You know, I do it in Italy with all our guests and where people feel welcome and not intimidated, where all races and all sexes are free and comfortable and not being judged. You know, it's a, it's a nice to go to a place where you feel safe and welcome. And that's the concept that will run through all my projects. Well, you most definitely are a brave new girl with <laughs> everything that you've built and supported and championed through your life. How would you define courage? You know, courage is, I mean, it sounds like such a simple thing, you know, that you don't be afraid, just do it. But there's more to it than that. You have to, if you have an idea, and yes, I feel that, of course, one should not be deterred by obstacles and you should go ahead. But you must have the courage to research what you're doing carefully. Make sure you work in small steps so you don't make big blunders, financial blunders or otherwise. And you must be also have the courage to challenge yourself to make sure that you re-look at everything that you're planning and doing and make sure you don't make big mistakes. And courage is also accepting uh, criticism, but perhaps not criticism, but, but comments from people who you know and trust who say that, no, this is not going to work. Look at it another way. You have to have the courage to say, but perhaps I'm not right. And I think that you have to be, courage also means being careful not just taking a blind leap and jumping off a cliff, but being careful. You have to know that you're not going to be, there's no shame in being careful and there's no shame in being analytical. And uh, when all the pieces fit together, then there is the right time when you can jump off, when you know how to swim and you know how to save yourself. So I think courage is many times a loose word to say, you know, a sense of bravado, but it is so much more than that. And looking back at young Rita, um, maybe in your early 20s, what would you say to her now? Oh, I would say that it would have been very nice to have some mentorship from somebody, you know, who would have guided. And even when you're raising kids, I feel like as a young mother, you know, none of us have the experience or training to know how to be a great mother. And you have to follow your own instinct. And now when I see my daughter-in-law raising her child, she has a lot of support. You know, there's a lot of information available. There's professional information available. And I wish as a young woman, I had more career counseling, perhaps more access to a professional about how to raise children, you know, how to balance your own budget in your own home. We are not trained to do any of those things. You know, we come into it cold and we have to just fight our way through it somehow. And we end up wasting time and getting frustrated. But I think that uh, uh, I would like to see the schools and universities offering uh, a sort of a 
counseling program that should be available to everybody. You know, even in your marriage, you know, how to be an equal partner in a marriage. You know, we, I mean, if I, if I watch my parents and grandparents, it was not always an equal partnership. But it's something that young women now must learn to fend for themselves. But in a way, you can flow through life with knowledge and information and some guidance. Yes, wouldn't that be wonderful? Um, I'd have loved to have had that too. And maybe they are, maybe maybe schools are taking that kind of thing on board. And, you know, we can all do with, with life skills, can't we? Yeah. And education is not about reading the book and having the information. It's also about knowledge that should be handed down. I would love to see once a week or twice a week mature counselling person who comes to the school to, to speak, different people coming to speak about different subjects. There's so many wonderful, bright women in different fields doing exciting different things to tell the girls that you don't have to be afraid. You, you choose your life the way you want it to be and you take a step forward carefully, do your homework and analysis and don't be afraid. And here is somebody who can you can come and talk to, a counsellor. What's the culture in Sri Lanka for young women growing up? It's a little bit divided. The women who have had the advantage of education and a good life there are a lot of stunning women in their field who have excelled in all areas and in all professions in science and arts and medicine but there are also a lot of women who get married at a very young age and become mums at a very young age the husband could be a lot older and i've and i've worry about them you know they're kind of stuck at home with no information taking the brunt of but we see that all around the world you know with young women who should be getting an education getting the opportunity to work a lot of young women from poor homes are not allowed to work in let's say a hotel or a restaurant because it's considered a bad environment for a woman and the woman herself would be ostracized if she went off to work nobody would marry her later on so it's, it's difficult, you know, but it's changing slowly. But I do believe it is changing and you see more people in the big cities. Of course, there are more working women, but in the smaller towns and in the suburbs, you know, it's, it's a man's world. But I would love to see more young women coming out to do, but also to learn how to balance a family and work is not easy. I think uh, young women around the world could use counseling about how to do that, to balance both and and still make a life for yourself. I always ask our guests who they would recommend as a brave new girl for me to interview. And who would your choice be? Well, the plenty of women I could think of. The one that stands out in my mind is Dr. Rukmini Banerjee, who is the CEO of Pratham. She has been exemplary and in her field. She's been a dynamic woman who has changed the lives of millions of people. And she stands up tall with, you know, she's not scared of any obstacles and she's a, just a remarkable woman. She sounds amazing. I would love to interview her. So, Rita, thank you so much. Thank you for taking us on a ride with the <laughs> owl and the pussycat. Have a lovely summer and we'll dream of Sri Lanka, the <laughs> Sri Lankan paradise that you've created for visitors who want to come and find a magical corner of calm in the world. We need that in our imaginations, even when we can't get there in reality. So 
thank you so much and i hope to see you really soon thank you lou it was a pleasure to talk to you and please come and visit us at the earliest i will thank you and thank you, you bye bye thanks rita for inspiring us to always think about others even when we are fully focused on building our thing and for showing us that business and generosity can be two sides of the same coin you can find out more about Rita's Owl and the Pussycat Hotel on www.otphotel.com and on Instagram at OTP Hotel. Thanks also to Podstar PR for producing the series and to you, our tribe, for listening. Download, rate and review on your podcast provider so that we can keep bringing you this free podcast. Goodbye for now and see you next time.